White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 694. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started, all engines are started, we have ignition, 2, 1, 0, we have a liftoff, we have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area, it's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center, the second five is moving off the pad, it is now clear to the top. Welcome to the White Rocket Podcast. I am your host, Van Allen Plexico. We are brought to you by all of our great patrons via Patreon.com. I am joined on this episode by a very special guest, Jonathan Knight, who is the host of the All Roads Lead to Amber podcast and a fascinating individual even beyond that. Jonathan, welcome aboard the White Rocket Show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So tell the audience first up, a little bit about yourself, and then we're going to have one heck of a great conversation about one of our favorite topics. Cool. Right on. So I'm Jonathan. I'm currently the head of games at the New York Times. I run the Puzzles and Games division there. Um, but I, you know, my whole career has been in computer and video games, basically. It started out as a producer and kind of worked my way up uh, to be a studio head, general manager. I, I work for big traditional video game companies like Electronic Arts, Zynga, Warner Brothers games. Um, I've been a producer, kind of like creative leader on games based on big properties like Harry Potter and Simpsons. Um, so yeah, just basically a game maker all my life. I started out actually, oddly enough, in the theater. Um, that's what my degree is in. I got a master's degree in directing. I studied Shakespeare. Kind of had like a computer as a bit of a computer nerd. Had kind of a hobby on the side, like a light lightweight coder. And um, so, you know, in the 90s, the idea of entertainment technology combining in a new medium, that was like kind of crazy back then. Of course, it's it's normal now. And that's how I got my first job in the video game industry. And it, it kind of came together. So, yeah, that's that's a little bit of my career. You know, in terms of my passions, this series, Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber, I mean, it's just been with me literally my whole life. I think I was 14 probably when I read the first mm-hmm. and uh, the first the book and um yeah, whether it's like writing about it and then eventually putting stuff on a website. And then about a year ago, uh, I decided I just needed to get it all out in a new medium. And I just started a podcast to put it all out there. Didn't really care if anybody listened to it, but um, I just wanted to go through the books chapter by chapter, line by line, and just share everything that I love about it. And yeah, that's why we're talking. Well, yeah, I certainly listened to it for one and and have loved it. And um, I've really enjoyed such a deep dive into a topic that I love so much. I've uh, I've shown you before that recently that I've done several podcasts with Sean Michael Vogt, a couple other people about the Amber books over the years. But, you know, it's it's not huge. It's not something that is currently a massive property. It's something that people that know about it know how big it is and the potential I think in some ways that it has but it it doesn't you know every I think every year that goes by because these books were largely written in the 70s and then the second series in like the 80s early 90s every year that goes by they just recede further into the distance and 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 there's so much that can compete with them now you know so so one of the things we're going to talk about is why they haven't made a bigger splash, why they're not current, and why there hasn't been done, something done with it. And we're definitely going to get into that. But um, first up, I just t- talk a little bit about your podcast. What motivated you to do that show? 
and what are you you know what have you tried to accomplish with it? You know, if I'm honest and I really think about it, I think it's a little bit of what you were just saying. I used to go, I had this habit, every time I'd go into Barnes & Noble, I would just go to the sci-fi fantasy section and look at the Zs, you know, it's Zs <laughs> right at the end, yep. and just kind of go, there are my books, you know, it's just something comforting about seeing them there. And a couple of years ago, I noticed that they're just gone, you know, and yeah. they, they had always Sometimes been there that and they're one. gone. Sometimes this yeah, one's I don't there, even, <laughs> but that's the I only one you'd see. see I don't see that one anymore. Yeah. Uh, probably, maybe probably it's not. out here in California or whatever. But um, so it just kind of made me sad. And I was texting with my brother about it. So I think that in some ways maybe precipitated it. Like if I don't want this thing to go out. You know, I don't want like a mm-hmm. candle to just go out. And so if I can put something out there into a digital medium that might, you know, last a little while and get some people interested, you know, just if I can get one more person to, to try Amber, you know, I figure that was kind of my mission. Um, yeah. And in terms of the, the format of it, like it's, you know, it's so multi-layered and rich and there's, you know, all he, you know, he was such a poet as, as you know, the fans know he was a literary scholar and he just had, you know, all that in his head and he found all these fun ways to put in references and allusions and quotes and, uh, you know, and unpacking all of that and maybe finding stuff that even I'd missed after all these years. Uh, that was part of the impetus too, to just literally go line by line and, and make sure I was catching all of that stuff. So yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it really does go in depth. You've done, um, how would you say you break down your episodes? It's like uh, several episodes per book, right? Yeah, I, you know, when I started it, I didn't really have a plan. So I didn't, I didn't plan it all out all that well. I kind of thought about half an hour an episode would be good, you know, and people get a little bite sized thing, listen to it in the car, whatever, before you go to bed. I didn't want any one episode to go on too long. So I just kind of started doing it that way. And it turns out some chapters are longer than others. Some chapters have more stuff in them. And so I didn't kind of like do a one-to-one mapping with, you know, the chapters of the book. And so 30 minutes, sometimes you can cover, you know, two or three chapters. Sometimes you only cover half a chapter. And, and, uh, and then when I was done with the book, I just said, okay, that's, you know, and that's book one and let's kind of reset episode, you know, episode two or episode one of, of book two and, and go from there. So let's, okay, go ahead. You had something to thought. No, no, no. I was going to say, and I think it ended up being something like, uh, I can't even lost count. You know, I think it's like 20, 50 episodes or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah, well, it's, you know, it's funny you say that about different chapters, different links and all, because I discovered that with regard to the, uh, a night in the lonesome October, Zelazny's Halloween book, uh, people were saying, yeah, we're going to read a chapter a night during October. And I said, Oh, I'll do that. So I got my family together. And for the first few days, it went real fast. And then you get to like the 20 page long chapters. I'm like, we're not, they're not going to sit through this whole thing. So yeah, I mean, his, some of his chapters are a page and some of them are 20 pages. And, uh, and that's kind of Amber in a way too. Um, so tell me, how did you first discover Zelazny and Amber? And was Amber the first Zelazny thing you discovered? And, and how did you find it? My older brother just walked in the room one day and you know, he was a big sci-fi fantasy reader. Um, he's way smarter than me and he just was like consuming books all the time. And, uh, you know, I was kind of kicking around doing nothing probably as a 14 year old. And, and he just like threw the book at me one day, literally in the living room and said, you should read this. And he didn't pitch it or sell it. And it's a pretty short book and I yeah. wasn't a huge reader. Um, 
but it was enough. And that's just how I got started. And I've heard that story over and over. It's like somebody's older brother just kind of like pitches the book at him. And that's, that's how, how we got going. Um, you know, I went on to read Lord of Light. I'll be honest. I have not read the full Zelazny, uh, collection canon. You know, I'm, I'm much more of an Amber fanatic than I am as like a Zelazny, um, scholar or Zelazny, you know, like, um, and I read, couple of his other books and and lord of the lord of light for me lord of light is like his king lear and amber is like his hamlet um <laughs> i i fully recognize lord of light as a masterpiece and um you know and then amber has its kind of peculiarities and inconsistencies but it's it's kind of the crowd pleaser so i've, I've really stuck with that one that's a good i like that description and certainly people have compared corwin to hamlet in some ways as well so that's a very good that's a good uh, good reference yeah I, yeah for me it was a classmate a guy uh i had a little circle of friends in high school that would kind of share recommendations on sci-fi and fantasy books this was the obviously in the you know the mid 80s and there were a lot of stuff a lot of stuff coming out from del rey and all that and 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 uh, somebody told one of my friends told me yeah i just read this uh this book the the the, the first amber book and he said, it's this really cool thing where this guy doesn't have any memory and he has to pretend like he knows what he's talking about. And that's a good hook. That's a really good hook. I mean, it's, here's, the, here's the thing to me that always was appealing about that. On the one hand, it's a, it's a really good hook to pull you in because it's a fascinating way to do a story. And on the other hand, uh, it's a great way to share information with the audience because the protagonist in a first-person point of view story doesn't know what's going on. So you as a reader learn as he learns. And I've, I've written a number of books in first-person point of view, and the very first thing I figured out, I didn't really figure this out reading them, but writing them I figured it out very quickly, is that the reader only knows what the protagonist knows. You can never know. You know, like in a third-person story, you can cut away to the villain in his secret lair going, oh, I'm going to get him with this secret plan. You can't do that in first-person because the only thing that the, you know, think about Eric. You only see Eric when Corwin sees him. Right, so you never get the quote-unquote villain unless he's interacting with the hero. That's a that's a real limitation on what you can do, and it's a challenge. And I enjoyed it as a challenge, but yeah. So what I did, the science fiction book club was running one of those deals where you could get either the two-volume Boris Vallejo cover, you know, the the first two, and then the last three, the yellow one and the green one, or you could get the Dragon Riders of Pern. And I'm like, oh, well, that's easy. So I, <laughs> boom. I got the two Amber books, and man, that was like, I think, ninth grade. And I blew through those two books, and just that was about the time that the first Merlin book came out. So about the time I finished Courts of Chaos was about the time Trumps of Doom came out. And I just kept it rolling, man. I just, in fact, my same friend's like, oh, you know, there's a new one out. I'm like, whoa, hold on, look out. And I got that one. And so, yeah, I... So I'm going to talk to you in a minute about the Merlin books. We got a long way. To, we got a little bit to go through first, but I will tell you this: people people put down the Merlin books, but you got to understand the way I encountered them was as they came out, coming in the mail as they were being published from the book club. And there's been nothing that arrived in my mailbox in my life that's made me as happy as getting those Merlin books in the mail every every you know six months, a year, however long it was between you know between each one. 
So yeah, I had a really similar. I mean, it's amazing. I had very similar experiences. You, I, you know, my brother and I just freaked out when Trumps of Doom came out. We didn't really, you know, this is the old days. There, you know, there wasn't internet. There, you know, right. you didn't have social media. You didn't like have up to the minute updates on everything that's going on everywhere. Like now, people know what's going on with the Hollywood movie. You know, three years yep. before it's coming out, yep. um, we just it just showed up one day, and we were just like, oh my god! I remember the cover with the hoodie guy with the computer yep. face, and yep. uh, and and it's true. And in a way, we you know, I encountered the first five books more like a Netflix binge, you know, because we had them all mm. and just binged them. Right. But then when the Merlin Chronicles came, it was more like an HBO kind of deal where we had to wait every week. You know, that's right. Out. So that's so good. It's yeah. true. I had that same experience. I wanted to tell just a quick story about the blue and <laughs> or the yellow and green, because that's how I came up too. we had the black and white individual paperback mm. novels. And that's how I first read them. And then very quickly we got the, the, you know the chronicles of amber basically and that's when i first started referring to it that way and my brother when he got married <laughs> his wife will never forgive me for this but my idea for a wedding gift for him was to take my green and yellow copies that we had used to subsequently like go super deep and we wrote a book called the encyclopedia of amber and you know i'm happy to geek out about that but we wrote it all down well before Neil Randall, well before <laughs> Theodore Krellick, you know, yeah, we wrote all exactly. this stuff out and, you know, it was, we were kids, like it wasn't all that well written, but, you know, we, we basically destroyed the books, you know, doing that. But my idea was to get Roger to sign them and, uh, and then give that as, as a wedding present. Oh, and so man. I, you know, this was the old days and I just, I don't know how I did it, but I got Zelazny's um, Santa Fe address. I think I just looked up in a phone book or something. And um, I wrote him a letter and I was like, hey, you know, I'm super fan and my brother and I were really into it. He's getting married. I want to give him something. And would you sign the book? You know, would you sign books if I send them to you? And he, and he wrote back and he's like, yeah, just send them to me with a return envelope and I'd be happy to do it. And so I packaged them, mailed them to Santa Fe. He wrote a really nice note in them, mailed them back. And that was my... <laughs> gift i my my sister-in-law didn't didn't get as much value out of that as my brother <laughs> did but it was it was fun that's so good i did see that on your web page when i was when i was uh looking at your stuff that you have there and you know i was like oh my gosh i never even thought of trying to do that so i <laughs> i wish i had man i and and you know when his uh when the word came out of his passing away in 95 94 95 i always forget that he and Carl Sagan and James Clavell died within a year of each other, three straight years. And that was just like the three darkest years of my life because my three favorite like writers, media people at that time were just all of a sudden gone, bang, bang, bang. And he was the first one. And I was just like, well, there goes, you know, any chance of any more Amber books. Well, first, there goes Roger. But there goes any more Amber books. There goes ever getting to meet him, you know, whatever. I almost went to their... Um, I was trying to think what year it was in. Uh, just about four or five years ago, they did a they did a, a, a memorial service for him, like the 25th anniversary or of his death or something in in Santa Fe, and I uh, and I I was talking online with um, uh, with his younger son at the time, and I almost went, but I just didn't have the money to fly all the way to New Mexico by myself for a couple of days, so I didn't get to go, and I kind of regret that now, because now I would totally go, but. At the time, it was just I wasn't able to do it, and I wish that I had. I really wish that I had. And I, you know, this is just this just occurred to me. They need to do some kind of a Zelazny museum there, like they have in Cross Plains, Texas, because my 
my Robert E. Howard friends. I'm a pretty big Robert E. Howard fan, but not like Zelazny, obviously. But the Robert E. Howard people do a big thing in Cross Plains every summer. And people from all over the world come there for like Conan and Solomon Kane and all that, you know? And I'm like, there needs to be a Zelazny thing in Santa Fe every year. People would come. Mm. I, but. Yeah. But I. I would go. I got enough things already on my plate. I can't run that too, but I would if I could. <laughs> but yeah, so. All right, so you just you, you told me, I don't know if it was when we were on the air before, but you told me that um, you're a bigger Amber fan than a Zelazny fan, and I totally get that. Um, from Amber, I kind of branched out, and I agree with you. Lord of Light was a little more challenging to me back in high school to get into it. It took me a while to get into it, and I didn't love it. I, thought, I, I recognized that it was a brilliant thing, but I didn't love it. I'm a much bigger Amber fan than that. But there are a lot of things he's done that I really love. So I want you to tell me, what is it about Zelazny either when he's writing Amber or whatever, what is it that you find appealing about him as a writer compared to other writers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I really, I mean, it's a lot of things, right? It's not just one thing, but I, I love the fact that, I mean, probably my next biggest kind of fandom or passion, if you will, is William Shakespeare. And, you know, I went to graduate school and studied Shakespeare and, you know, I've worked on some Shakespeare plays and that's been with me my whole life also. And I could tell, you know, even when I was young that he was into, you know, that he was like a, he had just kind of a poetic literary quality to him. So he's writing this kind of very popular fantasy, you know, stuff, but there's this underpinning of a really serious writer who's read the classics and he's drawing upon mythology, he's drawing upon Elizabethan drama. And I just thought that was really cool, you know, and if I was going to write, I always wanted to be that kind of writer that would pull in serious stuff, you know? Um, and even if I was writing something kind of just fun and whimsical. Um, so I like that. I think also just the, you know, his style, his prose is very kind of like readable and casual. His dialogue is, you know, it just kind of rolls very naturally and you can, you can really kind of just hear it in your head. And I, and I think that's, you know, but also just very like, um, courageous as a writer very swift and 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 he just moves right along and he'll just like a with a paintbrush he'll just with a few words just paint a whole world you know and uh and and you know he didn't he didn't feel the need to you know just kind of like go into a ton of detail about how everything works and how it all got started and how you know it just kind of like We'll throw stuff out. Yeah, back in the day, this guy named Dworkin created the pattern, which created the universe, and he drew these cards, and we can talk to each other through them. And then, anyway, I got back to my bottle of wine, and we planned the battle. And the next morning, we went off, and we suddenly it was ten thousand troops, you know. And it's like, whoa! It just he just <laughs> hustles right through it all, and he's got yeah. such confidence that the world is all in his head, and he can just kind of write it out. And that amazes me too, you know. If I think about it nowadays you have all these tools all this technology as a writer you can plan stuff out and you've got all these like you know um apps that'll help you plot out a novel and you know you it, the world building is something people talk about now whereas maybe they didn't talk about it as much mm. he just he just like wrote that stuff you know and i, I always want to know if he was alive and i could ask him one thing it's just like how much of it did you plan out you oh, know versus I, I, just kind of <laughs> i have an answer to that which is not a lot <laughs> I guarantee you that he was making it up as he went along. I mean, it has all the earmarks of like the Stephen King style, which is 
have a general idea, have the characters, and then just go where it goes. And he had to keep going back and correcting himself, right? Because he would contradict himself and have to correct it. And, you know, that always makes me think of Harlan Ellison. You know, Harlan Ellison would do that thing where he would sit in a restaurant or something next to the glass window or a bookstore next to the glass window, and he'd write a page and then tape it up to the window so that people could read it, and he couldn't change anything. He's like, I have to keep going now. I can't go back and edit to force himself. And that's kind of the way Zelazny wrote those books. He, he wrote the first fifth, and then he put it out there. Well, it's out there. I can't, I can't change it now. I have to say, oh, I must have remembered wrong, or, oh, it was actually this brother and not that <laughs> brother that did it and all, you know, and the car didn't do this, and I wasn't, you know. Yeah, that, that always kills me how he had to, yeah, he totally made it all up but, as he went along, but... Uh, yeah, no, that's really, that's really, well, so what is it about Amber that we like more than his other stuff? Because, you know, if you ask the literary critics, they will tell you Amber's like his worst thing. And I think we disagree. I'd like to think that we both disagree. So why is it that we think Amber is good and the literary critics don't? <laughs> well, I mean, what a good question. I mean, I can't speak for, for them, I think. Uh, you know, maybe they just weren't paying attention. Uh, it, maybe I'm one of three brothers, and the, you know, the whole warring siblings fighting over a vacant throne thing just really spoke to me. Um, mm -hmm. But it turns out that you know that's a that's just a classic uh, theme kind of plot device that you know now is you know everybody with Game of Thrones and everything else like yeah. that's. You know that's it. Families fighting each other. I don't. I don't know why. I don't know why critics would say that. Um, maybe it's because he hustled through it and made it up as he went. But um, I think it's more maybe that he was doing stuff with genre that you know was freaking people out because it was kind of a sci-fi. Yes. He was known for sci-fi and you know a little more serious. And then suddenly he does this very you know whimsical kind of like men in tights you know sword and sorcery thing and you know he even said that he was very he, he was very like conscious of that and deliberate about it and he said that he wanted to do something that was just fun you know that he'd have a good time writing and um, you know i think he also deliberately wanted to do something more commercial and when he first started writing nine princes he was just quitting his his day job you know he was just mm -hmm. going all in on being a full-time writer and um, so maybe the, some of that plays into the critique of it, but you know, why, why I love it is, is really that, you know, it's just that story and there's a vacant throne and there's a bunch of brothers and sisters that are fighting over it. And, you know, and then you got a guy who has amnesia and I agree with you on the, you know, the first person stuff. I, I would go one step further on that literary device. It's not just that, you know, uh, it's not just that it's first person and the, that, that, you know, and it's true, like everything we see and hear and know about has to be through, uh, through his eyes. But the, but the amnesia trick was, was pure genius because, you know, a lot of times, and as a writer, I'm sure you know this, it's like, it's also the, the challenge is that that first person knows a lot of stuff. They should know a lot of stuff. And so what they're, there's, even though you only know what they know, you're also only getting access to what they're willing to tell you as a, yeah. as a reader and how much they have to tell you or want to tell you. And, and that can sometimes turn into a bunch of exposition, right? That could kind of go on and on and on. But with the amnesia trick, not only do we just get what he sees, and it's very cinematic that way. It's like he just, he opens his eyes and then you're just kind of seeing it, but he doesn't have any memory. So like he, there is no exposition. There is no, well, let me tell you how I got here. Well, let me tell you what happened 30 years ago or 
you know, this all started because my dad, blah, blah, blah. Like none of that. It's, there's no exposition. It's, he doesn't have any memory. He has to figure it out just as you do. And that trick, I think, is a bit of the genius of the book. It really is. Yeah, I would. I mean, that's. I think that's what one of the things that makes the first book by itself so good. Um, I, I've always, you know, thought the first book was my favorite. And over the last few years, the fifth book, Courts of Chaos, has become a real favorite too, which is ex- really an extended novella. It's barely a novel. It's so short for for various reasons. But I love it because it's such a weird little odyssey through strange fantasy lands. It's the middle three that are just kind of like connecting the dots, really. You know, they're just like, and now more stuff happens with my brothers and sisters, kind of, you know, and my dad, you know. So, but um, have you, I'm going to ask you this. I hadn't thought of this until you said that a minute ago. Have you ever read uh, Philip Jose Farmer's World of Tears? I have not. All right. See, here's my theory because he's acknowledged borrowing from that okay in fact he dedicated one of the amber books to characters in that story not to the author but to characters in the world of tears which blew my mind right uh jadowin and his demiurge kikaha um yeah i read the first one i read the first two but the first one basically see here's my theory there's pulp fiction the way that like robert e howard and and um and uh edgar rice burroughs and so forth wrote it and it was kind of dry i'm not a big fan of the hundred years ago is the Conan stuff is great, but otherwise then Philip Jose Farmer comes along and really kind of fleshes out that style of writing more and makes it a little more literary and colorful and everything and, and illusions and stuff. But it was still kind of stilted in my opinion. And what Zelazny did in my opinion, Zelazny is kind of the third wave of that pulp adventure because he retains everything that Howard and Burroughs and then Philip Jose Farmer did. And then he brings in the poetry and the literary stuff and all the other trappings that he hangs over it. And you just get so much, right? Because you, you get the pulp action adventure, the heroic manly character and the women and everything, you know. In fact, that's what some object to is that it's if you, if you get down to the core, it's too much men's adventure and not enough, you know, literary fantasy. But you get the other things, too. And so he added a lot to it that you didn't get in that kind of stuff before him. I think he, he evolved the whole genre another another stage, another level. And I don't know that anybody's done it as well as him since then. I think that was one of the things that he did. He gave you a... He gave you something that would have been a rousing adventure story, a swashbuckling adventure story on its own, just the plot. And then he was able to decorate it with all that, all those trappings that he was so good at in his writing. So that's my thought on yeah, that. Yeah, I need to go, I need to go back and read those. I'm aware that he has he drew upon some sources, some of which were maybe less intentional, others he was, you know, very clear clearly and and admitted he was very influenced by um and, but that and that doesn't you know surprise me at all because he was he was so well and and so well read and mm-hmm. and studied i you know uh I, I also think this you know what he added was this kind of multiverse thing you know and uh that's you know it's great characters great story and everything but the world building of it you know uh was so impressive especially as i said earlier and as we talked about like he's making it up as he went but uh, now you know multiverse is a very popular you know theme and and, sure. and kind of 
from all the superhero movies and everything else. Like it's, um, but he was, he was really doing that and that appealed to me, the idea that there's like a kind of one true world, you know, at this, in all other worlds are shadows. And I think the idea that our world is just kind of a squalid shadow, right? Off yes. the earth is, is, is just, a, has very little importance in the grand scheme of Amber and all its shadows. And, but that's where we start, right? That's the story starts and our character and we kind of identify with him and, 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 you know, Harry Potter's like that too. Oh, it's a 10 year old boy and he's in our world and suburbs of London. And, and then all of a sudden he gets sucked into this incredible journey and he's, you know, the chosen one and all of that. So I think that, you know, is a big part of it as well. Um, just so much good stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think that in the hands of a lesser writer, the one true earth would have been our earth and it would be more like um, Narnia where you go to some fantasy realm, but this is the center. And he just kind of did the thing where we're just one of a whole bunch off to the side and there's this other place you can go that's the real center of the universe, basically. That, yeah, that that Yeah, but then he plants the seeds and he he comes back, you know, he'll come back like two books later and then he comes back again a book later and and that's just so awesome because by the time you do the full round trip and you come back to Shadow Earth and it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, Bill Roth and, you know, his house and, you know, the hospital or whatever, it's just now you've seen all of Amber and Rebba and the Forest of Arden and all the wars and all the shadow walking and Avalon and then you kind of finally go back to Earth and it just... It's uh, it's really magical the way he kind of plays with the reader. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking the one thing that's probably come the closest, in a way, to doing Amber in movie or TV is Highlander. Have you ever thought about that? I, I think from the, yeah, for sure, and from the perspective of, like, the immortals who were kind of, like, locked in this eternal battle and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the swords. siblings. And it's yeah, and, and uh, you know, and the, but yet you can kill somebody and you know, cut their head off, and even though it's an immortal, they can die. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. I th- you know, and they're playing with time in a little bit of a, a different way. You know, obviously, I think Amber's just so much more expansive. But oh, yeah. um, no, that's that's been pretty close. Um, I think you know, the, if you don't mind, just talking a little bit about the difference between the Merlin books and the Corwin mm-hmm. books. I think this is one. This is. And I, I liked the Merlin books when I read them, and I, I want to go deeper on those too. But one of the things that I struggle with is uh, sort of the way Zelazny changes his kind of worldview on, on things like Amber and Shadow and, um, and, and Shadow Earth in particular. Like for me, Earth, Shadow Earth has like too much prominence almost in the Merlin books. Like, Okay. They all kind of know about it, and then you got that like visual guide to Castle Amber from Neil Randall, and, and and where it was like, oh, you know, Gerard played football for you know <laughs> Alabama, and it's just there's, it, but but also, and it's not just Earth too; it's the Golden Circle and Kashva and these places that kind of it became a little almost pedestrian for me. Like, you know, okay, it's a big map, and you know, you've got all these different fantasy worlds, and they trade with each other, and and what have you. To me, it, it it and you can keep going back there, and, and when you go back, they're the they're the same. I, it, it undermined a little bit the original. Like I always thought that when Eric and Corwin fought, right, the centuries ago, or it was about 150 years before Nine Princes in Amber time, about 400 years Earth time, they fought. He's almost he's wounded Corwin. He's afraid he's going to die, so he just takes him off to some squalid corner of shadow to dump him in like a plague ridden medieval, you know, 1580s 
1590s London and goes back to Amber and thinks, I'll never hear from him again. And I always figured Eric would like deliberately pick like the most insignificant <laughs> corner of shadow. Right. I love it. And there's references it. to that, right? Squalid yeah. shadow. Sure. Brand at one point talks about how, you know, oh, and, and people say Flora pretended to like it there. Um, <laughs> it, it's not, it's, That's it's good. insignificant. And it, for an Amberite, it should be, you know, kind of just like, a little speck of dust and and i think that's important somehow and there's something about you know i understand merlin wanted to go there and study there because of his father and that makes sense but then beyond that you know that flora has boyfriends i i don't know like it's just it, something fell down for me on that one i don't know what you think of that no no that makes sense I, it's not something i ever like fully thought through like that but i totally get what you're saying yeah and, and it's yeah, I mean, it's it basically is finding in-story excuses to use our world more. And it does end up putting Merlin in this world more as opposed to the fantasy world where we kind of want to see him interacting. I mean, for me, the highlight of most of the books, once we get going in The Nine Princes and Amber, for me, the highlight to a large degree is either Corwin or Merlin interacting with the siblings. That's what I want to see. I want to see him bickering with Julian. I want to see him having a conversation with Gerard. I want to see him visiting with Flora and stuff. That's when it That's when it perks up for me is when he encounters one of them and there's some kind of sparks flying. That's always fun. And when Merlin is just hanging out on Earth, it's, it does become more pedestrian. It's kind of like, okay, and, he, and he's, he's kind of a doofus in some ways, which we can forgive he's young, you know. But he doesn't really take advantage of the situation the way that we know Corwin would have. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons Corwin will always be a more popular character than Merlin. is because Corwin is, is a bard. He's a romantic. He's a seasoned warrior and physician. He's basically John Carter of, of Mars without Mars. And, um, and Merlin is just kind of like this kid that, <laughs> you know, you, you follow and he, you hope he does something interesting, but mostly he just makes dumb decisions and stuff. So, and overlooks yeah. obvious clues and things. So, yeah, I get it. That's he also good. lacks ambition, I think, in a way yeah. that, uh, and, and then just from a pure narrative perspective, Corwin has really powerful objectives, right? I mean, you've got yes. a hero That's who really good. wants something. It just mm -hmm. propels the plot forward. They're trying to get this. They want that. They're going mm -hmm. for this. And, you know, it starts out like, you know, I want to be king in Amber. And I'm like, okay, uh, that's cool. That's clear. Mm -hmm. And I hate my brother Eric, and I want to kill him. You know, there okay, you go. I want to kill Eric, mm -hmm. king in Amber. And we want him to, to get those things because we like him. And, uh, and then it just sort of makes it very easy. And then as we go through the Corwin Chronicles, he changes, and that's something that was so important to Zelazny, is characters that evolve and change, and it's a huge theme, I think, in the first four, first five books. Like, by the end of it, they've all changed dramatically, oh, most, yeah. most of the characters. Um, and anyway, but, but, you know, even when Corwin changes, he's still, okay, now I want to preserve Amber. You know, now I want to kill Brand. You know, and it's just, now I want to repair the pattern. I want to write my own pattern. It, it, it's just... He's got strong objectives, and I think Merlin, it's a bit like happening to him, and uh, yes. yeah, that's one big difference. No, you're exactly right. The the Yeah, Corwin has all these grand objectives we can get behind. Merlin's objective is, why are people messing with me? And once he kind of figures that out, he just is basically a victim the whole rest of the way. He's a pawn. He's moved around by other people, and it's him trying to get out from under his mother, his brother's his enemies, you know, and it's interesting, it's good, but it's not as compelling as, as Corwin's story by any means. And I think probably Roger 
knew that. You know, he didn't want it to be five books. He wanted to kind of get in and get out. And it kind of, I, I have a feeling it was a combination of uh, factors that made him end up taking it out to five, but it didn't need to be. I don't think it needed to be. So, um, let me ask you this about your podcast. What what are some of the bigger things that you learned this time around reading the books and doing the podcast? Yeah. Well, I mean, some of them are pretty nerdy, but um, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think like you, I, I learned a much deeper appreciation for the courts of chaos. Um, you know, I learned that there's a whole scene in there that's like based on a real poem and he bought the, brought the poem to life. Um and you know it's not just one line uh it's when he's you know having a picnic with lady by the you know in the kind of like silver forest and the storm's coming and that whole scene is inspired by a poem not just one line or two lines like it just goes on for a while um so i think i learned that courts of chaos just has a lot more layered meanings through mythology and literary references than than i previously thought um i i learned a lot about the 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 conflicts in the timeline uh, doing this. I knew there were some, but I think I really kind of uh, learned that there are some very challenging, almost irreconcilable uh, conflicts in, in the timeline and, and, and uh, in, in sort of like, I mean, call them plot holes, I guess. Um, but that I, I really struggled with like, and I'll give you one example. Um, it's really around like, the black road and like where <laughs> where did that come from and i don't think i had ever clocked until i did the podcast that you know at first corwin does his death curse right and then he sees the black road and he thinks oh that's me mm-hmm. um he goes through guns of avalon and he keeps encountering these things on the black road that are like why'd you do that why'd you open this way why are you fighting us this is your creation right, right. so you just sort of like buy into uh the black road is you know was created by corwin and the timing of it is all right like it's the Valley of Garneth is like, there's no black road there. And then Corwin does death curse. He goes to prison for four years. He comes out and it's there. Mm-hmm. But then at Sign of the Unicorn, we learn, you know, and as we go into Hand to Oberon, that the stain, Martin's blood that stained the primal pattern, like it's in the shape of the black road. It's That's at the it. center. It goes to the edge. And the creatures of chaos are traveling that black road and coming into Amber, right? And so it's Brand who opened the way. It's Brand who did a secret deal with the Courts of Chaos yep. way back when, conspiracy. He's a defector, a traitor. And they told him, okay, you know, you, we'll tell you how to, dis- to damage the pattern. And in return, you know, you open the way for us. Uh, we'll let you be king in Amber, sure. But you're going to have to give up a bunch of shadows to us, right? They cut this deal with Brand. He does that, finds Martin, stabs him over the pattern, cr- creates that. Is that what created the Black Road, or is it Corwin's curse? And it, and the problem with that is that Brand has to have done that prior to Nine Princes and Amber. Like he's already been locked oh, up yeah. by his redheaded siblings by the time Corwin breaks out, because it's Brand who, you know, tries to kill him with the car accident. Immediately, mm-hmm. Fiona and Blaze capture him. They throw him in a dungeon, and then Corwin will be thrown in a dungeon. You know, about three months after, three, four, five months after that, right? So Brand's already done that. So when Corwin and Blaze are attacking Amber, you know, where's the Black Road? Like, what, it, it's is it just a delayed reaction? <laughs> the, the blood on the pattern, you know? And I, so anyway, I went. That's one area where I went kind of deep, and mm-hmm. and I'm still struggling to come up with how that all would have would have worked. 
That's, yeah, I think you're 100% right. That is definitely one of the examples I would have mentioned as he thought about doing it one way and then he had a better idea later, but he's already published the first couple of books, so he can't go back and change it. So I, I think it, all he needed, and I guess he didn't think of this or it didn't really ever fit in, but all he needed was a scene where Corwin and 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 brand are talking and brand says by the way thanks for that curse thing it really boosted my efforts a lot you know that's all it would have taken you helped me you know what i mean you kind of gave it some juice but he never really i don't think they ever really do that they talk about the no rug. he doesn't do <laughs> he, he you know he, he dances around it you know he mentions it it's not like Selassie's mm-hmm. unaware of it and corwin yeah. will kind of like wonder from time to time you know was that me or was that you know and you know, I think Oberon at one point even says that Lorraine, the shadow with the dark circle and all that was kind of a bit of Oberon's creation. And he, and he deliberately created a shadow where Corwin's curse would have been more strongly, you know, right. felt. And so he does a couple of nods to it, but it doesn't really get at the fundamental issue of, you know, why the Black Road isn't there, you know, for the, what, five years after Brand damages the pattern. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that. But you know what? I e- even though it results in some contradictions, I'm I'd rather him go with the better idea later than try to just keep you know working with something that worked earlier that wasn't as in. And remember, there were only I think again there were only supposed to be maybe three books originally, and so uh, and that was another thing I was going to ask you about. I actually had this on my list, but since we talked since we're talking about it, you know, his original plan was that in each book. You'd have a different sibling first person point of view. This was uh, Nine Princes was supposed to be the only one that was from Corwin's point of view, and the o- and, and it turns out that really the only time he ever does this is that chapter where Random, and man, when I was a kid and read that, I was so confused. I got halfway through that chapter before I realized it wasn't Corwin. I'm like, what is he talking about? And they're like, oh, it's Random. Okay. That was random. Get it? Um, but um, what do you think? What would, I've always, I always want to ask Amber fans this. What if he had done it as a different character in each book? Because you, you know, that's that's what I've been doing with my series. That's kind of you know inspired by Zelazny. Um, what would you have thought about if like each one had been from a different prince? What might have been a strength or weakness of that? I'm curious what you think. Well, I would love to have seen that. I mean, and. You know, my brother and I talked about that a lot when we were young. And my brother Kevin, um, he ended up writing this fun thing called The Dying of Ember. It's a parody of Amber. Um, but, you know, we talked about should we write uh, some fan fiction? Should we do it from Brand's perspective? Uh, and we, we always wanted to see kind of the Brand chapters. And even to this day, I think I would love to spend more time like thinking through the Brand timeline, you know, and, and, like I was saying earlier, what was it like for him to go, you, you know, be a traitor and, and pitch the courts of chaos? You know, did they reach out to him? Did he reach out to them? Right. Like, how did that get going? Um, and then, you know, with the Merlin Chronicles, you get all the Jazra stuff and Kashva and the Keep of the Four Worlds. And so, you know, we get a little bit more about what it must have been like for Brand. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was, you know, getting dipped in the fount of power at the Keep of the Four Worlds, you know, that made him go mad. And he really wasn't, you know that bad and Corwin kind of wonders about that at the end of Courts of Chaos you know what was it that really sent Brand over the edge so I've always wondered about that I would love that and then you know I think for sure there's other characters Eric comes to mind you know just what he does with Eric is so amazing you know he paints him as this you know Corwin sees him and and therefore the readers see him as this mad prince like Eric is just the you know and he's got to he's 
got to be killed. You know, Gordon's a good guy. Eric's a bad guy. I got to kill mm-hmm. that guy and take the throne. And, you know, he, and Eric just wants to kill Deirdre and he just wants to kill everybody. You know, and you get this picture of this mad prince. Right. Mm-hmm. And then later you kind of learn that Eric actually was probably a real stand up guy. Yes. And, you know, probably would have been a better king than Corwin probably, you know, uh, and died fighting for Amber. And turns out I didn't really want to take the throne. Julian and Kane talked him into it. And, you know, it felt badly about having almost killed Corwin. He wanted his father's approval. And the two of them probably have a lot more in common than than they thought. And so absolutely. Yes. No, I'm just, I'm agreeing with you that that I I think they had a lot in common. Yeah, I know. I would have loved to have seen that. And and I agree with you. The other thing I was going to say on the random thing is, you know, he, I had the exact same experience halfway through the chapter. I didn't realize it was random talking. And when my son, who's a teenager now, read it, he had the same. And I was smart enough to kind of go like, which chapter are you on? Okay, let me just. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know. Right now, give you a little tip so that he goes, oh, yeah, thanks. I was confused. So I saved him a few pages. But, um, but he, you know, Zelazny kind of like shot himself in the foot on that one because the first line of the chapter is, while sex heads a number of lists of, of my favorite lists, for me, Corwin, you know, it's flying or whatever. And and he says, for me, Corwin. Yes. And so it sounds like he's saying me, Corwin. And he doesn't put a com- he didn't put commas in the right place to say for me, Corwin. It's mm. his way of trying to tell you that it's random speaking to Corwin, but he ends up having the opposite effect. So that's, that's right. That's I, I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, you're right. He, I, I remember that he does. Yeah, he's trying so hard to make it clear and he <laughs> makes it worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, the, you really are just absolutely all over it with Eric. I agree. The, the, I, for two books, I hated Eric. And then there comes this moment where you have this sudden like insight and you go, oh my gosh, if Eric was telling this story instead of Corwin, it would be a very similar story and we would hate Corwin and think Eric was really cool. And it's all in how it's being told because Corwin, it's not so much that Corwin is an unreliable narrator, as they say. He's just very biased. <laughs> you know, he's just very, very biased. And so, but he kind of admits it as you go along. You know, he, he does have his moments where he says, now I'm just telling you what I think. And, you know, it, this is my point of view. And, and, that's, and that's really good. But I, yeah, I always laugh and think, man, I, I despised Eric for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden I'm like, gosh, he, he probably wasn't so bad, you know, because they were very much alike. They were, I think they had the same mother, right? They were both from the same, yeah, and um, same little branch of that tree and uh, were born con- uh, consecutively and even looked kind of alike, you know. And so, yeah, and both had black, I, I think guess, black and red, black I and think one of my, I think one of my favorite scenes in all five books is Corwin going back to his house in New York and... You know, he's got some time to kill while they're putting together the army with the guns and they're going to attack Amber. And he goes into his house and he realizes somebody's been there. He thinks it's maybe booby trapped, right? And then he looks and suddenly he sees on the wall the the uh, Yori, I forget the name of the artist. Uh, it's based mm-hmm. on a real artist. And there's a woodcut painting ha- hanging on the wall, a piece of art. And um, it's Eric. You know, he's he's been there and he's left it for him because he knew Corwin would come back there. And he's left a note for him and he's left the woodcut as a gesture of goodwill. And he's basically saying, look, Amber's troubles are bigger than our little 
you know, sibling squabble. It's bad. You know, it's 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 really bad. You know, the existence of Amber is being threatened. Like I need all of the siblings to come together and fight this common enemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm willing to set aside our differences. You'll have full honors. You know, just you know, as long as you kind of take orders from me as far as the battle goes. Right. Let's defeat yeah. the common enemy, and then we can get back to our our squabble. And it's a real mature you know, kingly thing to do. It is. Uh, he, he, and I remember reading it going like, this guy's okay, actually. And you should take this deal, Corwin, because Amber is more important than you. Yeah. And then he closes the letter and he just goes, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And it's such a great moment where he just goes, I think you're telling the truth, Eric, but, uh, I'm still coming for you anyway. Thanks, but no thanks. And we, suddenly we're back on the Corwin train and we're all in on him again. <laughs> and, you know, that's just, Zelazny is kind of like a wizard the way he just, you know, pulls us through that. But that's, I love that part. That's true. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, we're going to talk before we're done about the alleged TV show, movie, whatever, and some thoughts on that. But I want to take out the deck of cards right quick, just like we're Corwin in Flora's library and I want to I want to deal out the brothers and sisters and uh, look at them and you give me as brief as you want to could be one word could be a sentence a paragraph whatever you're comfortable with your thoughts on them I think this could be a lot of fun I'll see if I can do it too but we'll we won't make it we won't spend an hour on this but we'll see if we can just zip them out and I have them in lightning a particular round. it is lightning round but we're not done I have a I have them in a particular order though so I'm just going to deal out the cards here Benedict you know, older brother, uh, and yeah. I was the youngest of three, and and uh, I see a lot in common with Benedict and my oldest brother. So I just think of him as the quintessential older brother. Super competent. I blew my mind that Corwin at one point fights him because you've spent like two books telling us don't mess with this guy. He beats everybody, and then Corwin fights him. And I'm like, oh, really? We're already to this. I, that that really was one of the things that surprised me in the story was how quickly Corwin ends up in conflict with Benedict. You, I'd have thought he's like a boss you save for the last level of the game. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I, I didn't see him coming in like <laughs> round two or something, but there we go. Uh, Blaze. I've got mixed feelings on Blaze. Uh, he's a fan favorite. I think people like him because he's... Um, you know, as Corwin says, he's rash, exuberant, valiant. Uh, these are all the words that Corwin Zelazny used for him. I think he's a a cool kind of combo of a warrior and a and a uh, you know a, a, a magician. Um, mm-hmm. So he's got the kind of the magic stuff of the redheaded siblings, but he's not Brand. Uh, but he's got kind of the warrior skills. Not he's not quite Eric or Benedict. Um, but I I don't know why people like him so much. If I'm honest, like he's uh, just uses Corwin. I mean, and he's just ready to absolutely throw him to the dogs at the, the first second he gets him. He's clear that he's going to betray Corwin as soon as, you know, the, if, if, and when they come out on top, I mean, it's, and then, uh, you know, he, he, he's a, he's a traitor at the end of the day. Um, and he doesn't really redeem himself. He just kind of goes into hiding and he comes back in the very end and, has an army and that's under Benedict's command and helps win the day at the Pattern Fall War. Okay, fine. Um, anyway, I don't, I don't, I just don't know what people like about him so much. But he's he's a cool visual, you know. He's a cool visual character. He's Errol Flynn, basically. He's dashing and exciting. I think that's what they like about him. But you're right. He never really does anything to redeem himself, other than just kind of do what Eric asked Corwin to do, which is like put aside our differences and show up for the battle, and then. 
it just so happens that things kind of work out that Blaze, he doesn't win everything, but he doesn't lose everything. He just kind of comes out status quo, basically, in the whole story. And off he goes to wherever. I, what, I mean, whatever becomes of him, I don't know. He just kind of pops up. I say up. he gets off scot-free. That's how yeah. I look at it. <laughs> I like it. No consequence. No, no consequence at all. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and he would have been dead, more or less, if Corwin hadn't like sacrificed himself. I couldn't believe he threw the whole deck of cards. How do you throw the whole deck of cards, you knucklehead? Have one ready. Have a couple of them ready. Throw him one and keep... I'm like... I just couldn't believe he did that. that was so stupid. Um, very uh, uncharacteristic. Fiona. I like her. Uh, Fi, yeah. Um, so for me, um, you know, the, clearly the most developed and sophisticated characterization of the four between the four sisters, and that's not a very high bar, unfortunately. Right. Like Zelazny doesn't do a great job of giving the sisters real, real roles. But, but she's, um, you know, to me, she's the opposite of Blaze, right? She starts mm-hmm. out like Ken. She's a traitor, not you know, not very likable. Um, but ultimately, there's something about her that does come around to kind of valuing the preservation of Amber. You know, she's the one you really do believe maybe it just got a bit away from her mm-hmm. and that, you know, uh, she just maybe fell for Brand and and then realized, you know, fairly early on that it was getting out of control and um, but wasn't quite sure what to do about it. Uh, you know, wicked smart. She's got powers. Um, and... I think we like her because she teams up with Corwin uh, in kind of the latter parts in a way that's really unique to any other um, kind of duo in in all of the books. You know, Corwin's got Ganelon, right? He he teams up with Random. Um, there's it's mm-hmm. you know it's kind of a buddy thing for but the the Corwin Fiona like buddy scenes I think are special in that they're really trying to solve you know bigger problems than, you know, than Corwin Random are or, or Corwin and Ganelon to a certain extent, although obviously that's a disguise. And uh, they're, they're, you know, she respects Corwin because he's attuned to the jewel. She's not. Um, he's a great swordsman and you know, strong and powerful and, and incredible endurance. So she sees that there's stuff he can do that she can't. But at the same time, she's got, you know, sentries with Dworkin. She understands Bran. She knows chaos, and it's a cool, you know, it's just a cool dynamic. I have a feeling that Zelazny made all the siblings up at once, and then some of them proved more interesting to him than others as he went along, and I think that he found her more interesting than he probably did a lot of the others because she keeps coming back. She pops up a lot in the Merlin books, too. I think he had fun with her that he didn't have with, you know, there's only so much you can do with Flora, but, but Fiona gives you a lot more to work with, and I think he saw that. That's my theory, anyway. Now, you mentioned in your show that that Corwin tells us, Luella, you really didn't get to do anything. So what do we have to say about Luella? I mean I mean, not much sadly. I think her 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 big mark on the series, unfortunately, is that she tells Corwin that Brand came looking for Martin 50, 60, 70 years ago in yeah. random in Rebma. And that's like the her big moment in Sign of the Unicorn after Brand is stabbed and I personally will never forgive her for that because it's just crazy for the timeline. <laughs> if you think about <laughs> like brand is looking for Martin 60 years ago, that means that he's already been told how to damage the primal pattern. Mm-hmm. Find some like numbskull Prince of Amber that doesn't see it coming, you know, contact him by Trump and stab him and get their blood on the primal pattern. Ooh, I know who, you know, let's get a, a third generation. 
50 years ago he's already doing that like it just it wreaks havoc with the whole like timeline that you think is happening which is like what two three four years ahead of uh nine princes amber all the precipitating events happen the vacant throne the you know the figure out the cabals form the redheaded redheads have figured out a way to get oberon out of the picture and take the throne but you know, 50 years ago. So that always bothers me, and I, I blame Luella for that. But otherwise, she's kind of cool. Green hair, you know. She Green hair. That's it. A little bit apart from the rest of them. You know, <laughs> she's kind of an outsider. She yeah. lives underwater with the fish people. You know, she's cool. That's it. That's Green hair is what I got. <laughs> uh, what about, while we're talking about the sisters, we got we got two more to go. What about Floramel? Yeah, I mean, Flora's end up being a little bit of a stereotype. Um, that's where most of, like, the sexism of the the early stuff comes out. Um, you know, yeah. she's always, like, crying and breaking into tears, and that's just kind of weird. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't, you know, to me, she showed up, what, 400 years earlier in pre-revolutionary France mm-hmm. and met, you know, kind of bumped into Corwin, uh, it's sort of an aristocracy party. Like that's kind of cool. Gives you a little bit of an insight in, into her and that's been consistently pulled through. But I think, you know, she just comes across as kind of, kind of ditzy and um, there's just not a lot there. And I think in the Merlin Chronicles, he just decides to, to run with that, you know, the sort of promiscuous um, mm. blonde who is really just bouncing from boyfriend to boyfriend and likes to go shopping. And um, I don't know. I think, I think that's a missed opportunity. Um there's the one scene in Sign of the Unicorn when Corwin comes back and he's on top and he's got the jewel and, you know, he calls her in and she thinks, you know, she thinks he's probably going to have her executed or something. It's, it's she says, OK, it's time for payback. You know, what what's, what do you have in store for me? And he kind of feels sorry for her. And I think we start to get like a little bit more of a sophisticated character there. But like, that's about it. Yeah. And then at the end of Courts of Chaos, like. Uh, you know, he mentions her there. She's an archer, so she's she's there at least on the battlefield. But then, mm-hmm. you know, at the very end, when the unicorn comes out and you know picks random, like he's Zelazny literally forgets to mention that she's there. She's even there. <laughs> she names every other one, and it's like she, I don't know, she's off like doing something else. So, <laughs> not she my favorite. A, not my favorite character. She had a missed party opportunity. To get to. Yeah, she's kind of Marilyn Monroe, is how I think of her, and, and with all the things that go with that. So my conversation with Jonathan was so entertaining and so much fun, I think, for both of us, that it went on for a full two hours. So this was the first half, and in the next episode of the White Rocket Podcast, you can hear the second half where we continue discussing the princes and princesses of Amber, and we also talk about what we'd like to see in an Amber TV series or movie. So be sure to tune in next time for the next episode of the White Rocket Podcast. In the meantime, we will see you all down the road. Uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.